0: to the Overland Journal podcast. I'm your host, Scott Brady, and I am here with Allison Delap, who is the executive director of the Overland Expo Foundation, which is an incredible organization that we're going to talk about a little bit more as the podcast goes on. But before you started that, you are one of the most prolific travelers in this segment and you've spent years living, traveling, adventuring in South America and other places around the world. Thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And a special thanks to Moon Fabrications for supporting this week's podcast. Moonshade by Moon Fabrications is the portable vehicle awning you've been waiting for. Moonshade is built to last, simple to set up and ships with everything you need to mount the Moonshade to most vehicle styles without a drill right out of the box. With over 60 square feet of shade coverage and multiple setup configurations, Moonshade is the ideal choice for rigs of all sizes. Moonshade only weighs 8 pounds and shrinks down to the size of a yoga mat so you can pack more of what you need out on the trail. Visit moonfab.com. That's M-O-O-N-F-A-B.com to place your order today. For the worst summer sun, treat yourself to the best. Moonshade has you covered. Thanks, Moonshade. What I'd love to do is kind of paint the picture of how you got to the point of being the executive director of the foundation, what you learned about your travel. So talk a little bit about where you've traveled in the world.
1: Let's see. I started traveling in Los Angeles, um, or I should say as a starting point in Los Angeles. Is that where you were born? In Southern California, okay. yeah. I lived and worked in Los Angeles for a long time in the okay. entertainment industry. And so I had my summers free. And so sure. I would take two, three months off. I traveled around the Southwest first, and then that's when and it finally started where it's like, okay, I got to keep doing this. Mm. And then the next summer it was up to Alaska and back this summer after that. It was like, okay, I'm just, I I'm broken. now. You know? yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. Like I just need to keep going and yeah. it just made sense to continue South. I ended up packing everything up, leaving Los Angeles and Amazing. basically for six months traveled through Central America and then down to South America, to Argentina.
0: When you were traveling in the desert Southwest, was that on motorcycle or did mm-hmm. you travel by other means? What was the first motorcycle that you traveled on?
1: A KLR 650. Perfect. It, it was wonderful. It yeah, was they're amazing. I could fix it anywhere. That, sure. That's the main reason why I chose that bike. It was doesn't do anything well. It's mm. heavy. It's cumbersome, but it gets you there.
0: I've always called it like the Land Cruiser of adventure bikes because they're so reliable. They're ubiquitous. They're around the world easy to work on. Big fuel tank.
1: Big fuel tank. Yes. Which comes in handy.
0: At what point in your Southwest travels, did you realize like, I want to go further afield or did it just, was it a moment or was it, it just kept building?
1: It was actually an interaction I had with a couple in Wyoming that had asked me, they were just curious where I was like it around the Southwest had been interesting because a lot of people stopped and they wanted to know one, was I solo traveling? Like, how did I feel safe? The number one question I got was, was I packing? And I was like, yeah, I packed my clothes. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> and,
0: exactly. um, what am I going to do? Am I going to get a shootout in the middle of the desert? Yeah.
1: I was having this wonderful com- conversation with this couple, and they were like, oh, well, have you been up to Alaska? And it was just like, no, I haven't. They're like, you should go next summer. And it was like, okay, well, why not? It ends up being conversations with other travelers along the way that make that little spark happen. Mm. And then you're on your next trip.
0: So I planted the seed of, I'm going to go to this place. Now, how was Alaska?
1: In the summer, I actually left very late. So I left on the trip late August. So I was in Alaska during September. Okay. And the reason why I think that's the most beautiful time is one, all of the summer travelers are heading south. Right. So it's pretty vacant. There's no mosquitoes and the fall foliage is starting to come in. It pops. Yeah. So it's just beautiful time of year. It did snow once, but it was like 65 degree days. Uh, most of the time. And then just a few chili at night, but could easily find campsites, easily accessible to everything except for gas.
0: Yeah. That can be a challenge.
1: The rule is anywhere you see an open gas station, get gas. Go ahead and
0: fill up. Now, did you take the Alcan up or did you take the Casier or did you hop on the ferry?
1: I hopped on the ferry going, see, what did I do? I took the Casier all the way up (laughs) and then I hopped on the ferry coming back because I needed a rest.
0: I really liked the Casier. It was a, a nice departure from the Alcan. And it was actually some locals that I remember when I did one of my first trips, I was went up the Alcan and I just figured I'd be going back down the Alcan. They said, why wouldn't you take the Casier? And I look on the map and, and it was amazing. It was, it was beautiful. Wonderful. Yeah, very, very beautiful. And lightly traveled. Mm-hmm. Where did you travel in Alaska? Did you go to Denali or did you go up to Prudhoe Bay? I or-
1: uh, went to Denali. The intention was originally to go to Prudhoe Bay, but because I left so late in the season. Season. The roads were starting to ice over. No and luckily I met some other travelers that uh, had just had to turn around sure. because they were on motorcycles and they weren't able to get all the way to Purdue Bay.
0: Yeah. It can very quickly turn challenging for a bike. Yeah. And Unless me, you've got studs on the tires.
1: Yeah. wasn't putting studs on the <laughs> tires <laughs> yeah, sure.
0: and I really didn't want to pick up the bike that many times. Yeah. I know that makes sense. Well, for a future trip, maybe you'll go do that, finish yeah. it up. So then you do Alaska and how is that starting to change your perceptions of travel now that you've done this long? longer trip.
1: It's infectious. It kind of just gave meaning. It was also a, an interesting time in my life of just like rediscovering independence and wanting to know that I could just do things for myself.
0: Sure. What a proof of that. Like I'm going to Alaska. That's awesome. <laughs> That's amazing,
1: yeah. I mean, yeah. it was a wonderful experience. and i met I met some other female, not necessarily writers, but just other female travelers that it was like it kind of sparked to them as well that like, oh, they can do a motorized type of travel mm-hmm. and still be self-sufficient and be okay,
0: yeah, totally. absolutely. So you finish up Alaska and now you're still working in the entertainment industry. or are you mm-hmm. what at what point did you start to decouple from that? From like that nine to five in a way?
1: Luckily, I was freelance very long days, but, that allowed for, you know, freedom at other times. I think when I started traveling, it was probably when it was like, okay, like how do I get out of Los Angeles Mm. as like a final departure? Never fully my city. It's really busy and congested. And I loved the motorcycle roads around there because you could be to the desert, to the ocean or to the mountains within an hour. I do miss that part of it. I didn't miss the hustle and bustle of the life. and, And I wanted to just experience something that was more than the everyday life in Los
0: Angeles. Yeah, it's I grew up there. I grew up in Sherman oh, right. Oaks. So, so, you know, there's a lot of traffic. It's very difficult to do much, you know, and just to maintain connections because it's an hour to go. 10 miles and I'd never really felt like it was home for me. So yeah, when I left, I never decided I was never coming back. You leave Southern California. And is that when you left on your trip through Central America? Mm-hmm.
1: So that's when I packed everything up.
0: Same KLR?
1: Uh-huh. Same awesome. KLR. That's so yep. great. To, it, you still have it? I don't. I actually yeah. sold it in uh, Punta Arenas, uh, Chile.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Okay. We'll get to that. That's mm-hmm. good. Okay. So you start start uh, heading south.
1: So I start heading south. I met up with uh, a few other riders at a Horizons Unlimited event. It was one of those like okay, like we we all kind of put out feelers, like, do you want to cross the border together? Because um, it was all five of us solo travelers. And we're just like, we just, we need to push each other to just make that first step of going to that foreign country. Because- Keep going. Yeah. Being in, uh, traveling around the Southwest, going up to Alaska through Canada, it didn't seem like that big of a deal. Even though the Tijuana border was closer in proximity, that seemed like the bigger deal to actually get going. And so it was probably like a week after we returned home from the event that they, somebody put out a text of like, are we doing this or not? Because <laughs> everybody was just waiting for everybody
0: else. Like, sure. I
1: don't know. Are we going to do this? And so we ended up meeting down at the gas station right before the border and crossed together. And we did you cross
0: it to Kate or in Tijuana? In, in Tijuana. Oh, that's great.
1: Yeah. We just rode around for maybe like all of Baja, crossed over to the mainland and probably rode around for maybe 10 10, 14 days together. And then that was about the time where we kind of worked out the kinks in our writing patterns and just what each of us needed. And mm. then we kind of went our separate ways.
0: And did you feel like that you, you were looking forward to breaking off on your own? Or were you starting to enjoy the camaraderie of a group? What was your feeling at that point? That's a very good question.
1: Well, so being the only female in a group of five guys, yeah. there was a little bit of big brotherness, I'll call it. Sure. A couple guys would go Off on their own. It was the the idea. We'll meet up with them later. You know, one other guy took off, and but there was always one guy who seemed to want to like make sure, yeah, (laughs) make sure that I was okay and wanted to travel with me. Make sure that you know we all got to the same location, and so it was. I think finally a point where I was just like, I just need to be by myself for a while. And I woke up at 6 a.m. before everybody else was awake. And I just wrote a little note like, perfect. I'll see you guys later. Bye, Felicia. So I, gotta, I gotta go. So I wanted to just experience that for myself. I've always been a solo traveler and sure. and that's what this trip was about for me.
0: So. What was your defining solo travels before that? I mean, were they not motorcycle related? Were you traveling you know, just internationally or when you talk about yourself being a solo traveler? traveler, what were some of the bigger solo travels that you did before this trip to Central America?
1: Just the motorcycle travels.
0: I see. Mm -hmm. That's what you're saying. Sure.
1: So that's kind of what
0: sparked all of it. What were some of the highlights for you in Mexico? What did you really like?
1: Oaxaca was amazing.
0: It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. The
1: food is amazing there. The people were wonderful. We were actually trying to make it to Oaxaca for Dia de Los Muertos because it lined up and like it was just too much riding. We couldn't get there. So we ended up going to this one town kind of nearby, Zacatar I think it is. They had this just cute little town celebration of Dia de los Muertos. And it felt so intimate just to be a part of that rather than the huge one sure. in Oaxaca. And I, I still would love to go visit that one day. And it were they
0: all just, just a, hanging out, having lunch in the cemetery? And it, like, you can see that. It's yeah, just like amazing. the, the just,
1: towns yeah. were covered in the marigold petal designs. And so just being able to walk around that with everything lit, you know, lit up with candles. And it almost looked like a prom, like a Dia de los much of prom where everybody was in like full skeleton makeup and amazing fancy outfits. And it was just wonderful to be able to experience
0: that. Well, and you're a photographer. And for those that are listening, Allison has a photography book. What's the name of your, the book that's mostly photography. It's one of your movies. Chaos and Harmony. That's it. When you think about your travels as a photographer, what are you trying to capture? Are you trying to capture your own memories or are you looking for fine art? Talk a little bit about your photography.
1: Uh, I think it was a little bit of both. Like I was trying to capture what I was feeling on the road. Sometimes it was just like jammed on a bridge where it was just kind of this overwhelming feeling of how do I even get out of here? Because mm-hmm. there are so many people around me to these wide expanses and just following the curves of the road as sure. lines on paper. So I just wanted to kind of share.
0: So you were looking yeah, to kind of give it from your bird's eye because so many people will do that. It'll be like the point of view. Mm -hmm. photograph. And for others, it's the photograph of them in the environment, Mm -hmm. the selfie that we see now so often. That's what I liked about your images is it gave the sense that I was there. I thought that was really strong. Thank you. So yeah, it was really great. You leave Mexico and where did you go next?
1: Let's see, Mexico and then through Guatemala, Honduras, I skipped El Salvador, going down to Costa Rica and then Panama before catching the boat. And the one thing I'll say about uh, kind of traveling that route that I found very funny was in talking with locals, especially in Mexico, they were asking, you know, where are you going next? And so I'd say Guatemala. And they're just like, oh, no, no, it's so dangerous. dangerous. It's so dangerous. I'm like, oh, well, have you been there? They're like, no, no, we we wouldn't dare. Just be careful. So then it was Guatemala. They were like, oh no, you're going to Honduras. Like, be careful, be careful. And so it was just funny that every single country, they were just scared of their neighbors. You know, I said, well, you know, what? how do Canadians think? Bringing that full circle
0: of. Yeah, that's true.
1: What's in the media?
0: Did you ever ask them what they thought about Canada?
1: <laughs> I will next time. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That'd be funny to like flip the script the whole other way. Like, Like, do you think Canada's dangerous? Yeah. <laughs> That'd be really interesting. What year was this that you did that trip? So this is 2012, 2013. So then you make it all the way down to Panama. Did you already know that you were going to go to South America or you had not decided yet? I
1: knew I was going to South America okay. and there was a limited time going through Central America uh, because I needed to catch the stall rat.
0: And that's the sailboat. Mm-hmm. Got it. How was that experience?
1: Amazing. Okay. Amazing. So
0: I love the sailing thing. So
1: Of just riding right up to the dock and watching them with ropes, just hoist your bike <laughs> over the side. And you're like, I just really hope it doesn't drop into the ocean because that's sure. the end of it. I mean, they've done it so many times that they know what they're doing and they put it on board and it was I think three days, four days, something like that to get down to Columbia and,
0: and how big is of a of a boat is that? Is oh, it,
1: I don't remember.
0: I mean, do you remember like how many people oh, were they, on board? Um
1: let's see. There were I wanna say twelve motorcyclists. Oh, that's a lot.
0: So it's a big boat. Yeah. And they're just kind of like lashed to the foredeck or mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah,
1: they're just lashed to the railings and, you know, covered that's, with tarps. Yeah, that's that was fantastic.
0: Yeah. And then what did you think about that experience being on the boat?
1: Uh, I loved it. It's one of those kind of uh, pinch points in the trip. Where you get to meet a lot of travelers uh, because there's only so few ways to cross the Darying Gap. You get to kind of exchange information with these people and, you know, where are you going next? Where are you going? And, you know, form other little pods of like travel groups, I should say. Once you get off the boat, like some people went into Venezuela, which I did, and then other people went into to Colombia and and south because
0: they had limited time. Where did you land with the sailboat? Uh, Cartagena. And then you took off and you're like, I'm going east to Venezuela. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At that time, you would have still been able to get in. Around that time, I tried to get a visa and I couldn't even get a visa. Being prior military, they wouldn't let me go.
1: It it was an interesting time being in Venezuela. It was right after Chavez died. Maduro? um, Maduro? was I think that's um, the name, yep. trying yeah. to get elected. You could just see the struggles that were starting with yeah. everybody there. And I mean, they say gas is cheap. Gas was so cheap, but actually getting gas was very difficult. It was the kindness of Venezuelans that actually allowed me to get gas Amazing. because you had to have like certain credentials in order to I see. actually go up to the pump. And so some people like would just, you know, motion me over and let me use their time at the pump, so to speak.
0: Amazing. Yeah. And what else were your takeaways from Venezuela on a bike? How was that? What was the highlight? What was the a location of, that you went to that you really loved?
1: Well, I'll admit that we didn't get as far as we wanted to because the police on the road, they basically kind of at checkpoints, they did stop us. And and say that it wasn't safe to go okay. on ahead. And so we were turned around several times. And so it's like, we, it, it was one of those things we just didn't really want to test.
0: Yeah. You don't know. Yeah. Like they it, it could actually be very well informed and it's a—it's mm-hmm. going to be a problem. So then you head back into Colombia. What were the highlights <laughs> of Colombia for you?
1: My memories are deceiving me because I, I lived in Panama and Colombia for, for a time. And okay. so I'm trying to remember which ones were
0: which. I see.
1: Traveling through Colombia. I mean, the people were just amazing.
0: They are amazing there. Yeah.
1: I believe I went to Medellin. Beautiful uh, city. Yeah. I, I loved just all the art. So, is, so is was is Bogota. Yeah.
0: Like to go out at two in the morning. There's families out and about. I mean, that's how you always know a place is safe because there's kids running around and and and
1: that's just it. It was just anybody and everybody. Yeah. I really just loved the kind of very upfront culture.
0: Yeah, that it was, and great food, and like you can Wonderful find a food. you can find an excellent cappuccino, and like it's surprise. I mean, for those that are listening, it's we were programmed for so long to view Colombia in a certain way, and it is not that country anymore. I mean, it is very modern, very safe, but it still has these fantastic backroads, the twistiest asphalt that's super fun on a motorcycle, or the most challenging dirt track. But then you can stay in a great hotel and have a great meal at the end of the day. Yeah, it's yeah. really special there.
1: Uh, that's already in a few. Years, years for when I traveled there a second time on motorcycle I probably should this is one of those moments where I should have stopped um, because the sun was setting and we were you know just passing through a town we're like no let's just go a little bit further and it's turned into a dirt road and we thought oh might just be a few miles no it actually ended up being switchbacks uh, along a mountain um, with lorries coming the other direction unable to see yeah around the other side and I didn't know this was the uh, trampoline of death
0: (laughs) is what it's called. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. So yeah, it's called the Colombian death road. I almost got killed on that road, but it was by this guy from Idaho. He was like in his Ford full size truck with a camper and he comes and I'm on a BMW and I come around the corner slowly and he's flying up the hill because he's afraid he's going to lose traction or whatever. And he sees me and his eyes are this big around and he comes and he's like, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, it's no problem. And he stops and he's like, of course I answered in English. I just remember the license plate, like sticking out in my mind of like this Idaho plate and this giant full-size truck nearly running me off the road, but that's a great road.
1: It is a great road. I ended up doing it at night and there was part of I did me not that do it at night. really wished that I had done it during the day. <laughs> I have a fear of heights and so part of me was very glad that I did it at night and didn't know what kind of drop-off was Maybe on the other side. Maybe it was side.
0: just what it was supposed to be. Yep. Now, when you were in that area, did you get into the Tatakoa Desert at all? Oh, yes. It's amazing. I love that People don't area. even know that it's there.
1: Yeah. No, going up into that area and then continuing further all the way up into the northernmost point mm. of of South America along. Yeah.
0: Wajita Peninsula. Right?
1: Yes. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. It was just gorgeous. Awesome. Not, not traveled to nearly enough. Yeah.
0: It's so great. You make it all the way down to Ushuaia along the way. I mean, for me, I, I did a trip motorcycle trip kind of like yours where I started off with a group of people and then I split off and I go down to Lima by myself over the Andes and then kind of make my way back up to Colombia And it ended up being personally like very transformative, changed a couple of different directions in my life. When you're traveling solo, what are you realizing about yourself? How are you seeing yourself start to change because of these interactions and these experiences?
1: It's very enriching beyond just this realization that as a female, I can do this myself. I think what had the most impact was meeting other young women along the way that don't have as many opportunities as I do here in the US. And you can kind of see it in their eyes. Like when I take my helmet off that oh my goodness you're a woman and mm. you're doing this like maybe there is something more than just this life that's set out for me I see and so that was really just a powerful experience for me meeting a lot of locals and also the the kindness of locals.
0: It's incredible.
1: Yeah. Being a solo traveler, especially compared to traveling with a partner, you're seen as...
0: You're more exposed as a solo traveler. You're
1: more exposed and you're less intimidating. Sure. And so more people come up to you and want to know what it's all about. Where are you going? Where are you coming from? Hmm. I was invited into many people's homes, whether it was just for dinner or they had an extra bed for me to sleep in. You can tell from just how they approach you, they want to give as As much as they can. And usually Mm -hmm. they have way less than we have here in the U S their priorities are about family and taking care of their community. And so even if you're just momentarily entering their community and then passing through, they're kind of welcoming you.
0: Yeah. It feels like as a solo traveler, especially on a motorcycle, you take the helmet off and they see that you're all alone. And there's just something that for some people, it will draw them to you Mm -hmm. to figure out why are you here? Why are you all alone? Or maybe they feel like you might be lonely or you might need help. I
1: remember this one time in Chile, actually one of the riders i met uh on the stall rat i ended up meeting up with her farther south and we ended up traveling together in chile for a while long days um since it was summertime down there and so we could just ride and ride and ride and so we were needing to find a spot at the end of the day and found this one it was um a campsite but it had closed because it was uh, not quite there was uh, the off season went up to the house and asked the woman like hey we're just staying here for the night do you mind if we camp out and she was like sure like are you alone and i was like no, no no i'm with another woman and she she didn't believe me and so she and her two sisters and her brother and her you know brother's brother like they all came down to see us at the campsite and they were just like my goodness like it's two women like this is not your boyfriend you're not lying like this yeah. is <laughs> just why are you doing this all by yourself and so it was just like this is such a heartfelt night just to spend it with them and Mm -hmm. and try to explain in broken English and broken Spanish about our travels. Try to have this conversation. It was.
0: And maybe that is that opportunity to show them that something else is possible, even if it's minor. Yeah. It could change the course of them and and their future generations. Yeah. Yeah, The young kids that could grow up. No question. See that anything is possible. And a special thanks to this week's sponsor, GCI Outdoor. Whether you're heading out for a weekend of adventure in the woods or to your backyard fire pit, GCI Outdoor gear is ready for whatever you have planned. GCI Outdoor has been around for 25 years, so they know what they're doing when it comes to the best in portable recreation gear. GCI has innovative products ranging from outdoor rockers to complete camp kitchens and everything in between. And with a limited lifetime warranty, you know they stand behind everything they make. GCI Outdoor gear is comfortable, durable, and built for adventures, big and small. Try them out for yourself. Head over to their website at gcioutdoor.com and save 10% off your first purchase when you sign up for their email list. Thanks again, GCI. Did you find that you were starting to think about how do I begin to maybe write your first book or or what was starting to incubate in your mind around that?
1: I had the idea to do a photography book before I left. Mm. Um, I had kind of set up a Kickstarter back in the day as a way just to see, uh, to gauge interest for it and see if anybody liked to know about it. So I had it in the back of my mind while I was traveling. And I honestly kind of wish I hadn't Mm. because it ended up making things feel a little bit like work because I worked in the photo industry And then having to take pictures during my trip, it almost felt like it took a little bit away from Mm. where I needed to be in my headspace Mm. that needed to be focusing on the trip. I'm really glad I did it so that I have something to look back on. Right. And I think I kind of had to come to terms with that after I came back though.
0: And have you since been able to do that trip where it was just for yourself?
1: After I returned from South America, I ended up being in the U.S. for a little bit and then I moved to Panama and lived in Colombia for a little bit. When I returned to the U.S., I was still wanting to travel by motorcycle and so I ended up continuing to travel by motorcycle for several months uh, until I found a spot that I wanted to settle down in.
0: Oh, that's great. So you were look—you not only getting a chance to travel but also look for where your home might be. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fun.
1: Because I was determined not to return to Los Angeles.
0: <laughs> not going back. Not yeah, going that's back. great. I think that was kind of how I ended up in Prescott. I just kept driving around until I thought, this is just the right distance to all the things that I want to go see. You make it all the way down to Ushuaia. Did you ship back at that point or what was, did you sell the bike?
1: Being the the kind of minimalist traveler that I was, I had enough funds to get me down to the tip of Argentina. And then I needed to sell a bike basically to buy a plane ticket back home.
0: That's amazing. So
1: I I mean, I walked into a deal at that point. It was actually a group of lawyers who wanted to start a motorcycle riding club who wanted to buy motorcycles. And so I think three or four of us from the group ended up selling our motorcycles to them. Incredible so that they could you know have outfitted motorcycles down there because just having motorcycles in general I think was sure. very difficult to get down it there is.
0: one of the things that I loved about Ushuaia it was one of those things in my travels that kind of uh, surprised me I always felt like Ushuaia is going to be that this like the Star Wars bar at the ar- end of the road it was going to be this like yeah. dusty little town like there's just like there's no it's the end of the world but it's not and There's like coffee shops and like and, a nice airport and
1: uh, wonderful restaurants totally nice, yeah, nice
0: hotels <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly well I mean the steaks in Argentina are unbelievable. Amazing. Yeah, that would be actually, I won't call him out on the podcast, but I there's a, a motorcycle rider that I know that is a vegetarian and he actually decided to stop being a vegetarian in Argentina. It's the truth. Like, well, first of all, he couldn't really find many options as a vegetarian, but he's like, you know, if I'm going to like stop, stop for a while, that's the place to do it.
1: I mean, it's funny you say that. So I, when I was living in Los Angeles, I was mostly vegetarian sure. and I was like, okay, if I'm going to do a South America trip, I have to start introducing meat little by little Little, sure. Because it's the majority of what they
0: it's true down there. Yeah. It's hard to find. I mean, if someone was a pescatarian, you could probably get away with it, have more fish, but you can't always find fish. Sometimes those little roadside stand, they have one thing that they do well, like it's chicken that day or whatever. Yeah. So that was pretty interesting. And he's like, yeah, it was kind of amazing. And then he went back to being a vegetarian. So, Which is great. So, I mean, he, he adapted to what he needed to do. You come back to the US and then you decide to go back. So what, what made you decide to go back to South America a second time as opposed to going to someplace else in the world? A man. <laughs> okay. Okay. Love can make us do crazy things.
1: Oh, love does make us do crazy things. I met somebody at the end of my trip. And so he was a Colombian living in Panama and I ended up moving down to Panama for a while mm-hmm. and we were planning to take a big trip and started out and then things didn't work out and I returned to the U S
0: there you go. Yeah. You, well, what a great way to, to figure out if it's going to work out or not. I go do a trip together. <laughs>
1: exactly. You got to travel that.
0: well together. No question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you can shorten that whole learning process. Yeah. figure it out in a hurry. Well, that's good. After that, you started to get involved with the Overland Expo.
1: Oh, actually while. Wow. So, so still while when, you were traveling. Yeah. my So I returned from my trip in 2013 and then I ended up starting to work for Overland Expo at the end of 2013.
0: Okay. So. And then what was your first role with Overland Expo.
1: Uh, I came on as logistics manager. Okay. Just kind of helping Roseanne out with anything and everything that she needed help with.
0: A big event. How do you manage it? Sure. Mm -hmm. No question. Did you start to do any other travels during that period of time? Like, were you able to take breaks? Because at the time there was only one or two events, so it was easier to get breaks away. Mm -hmm. Were there other places that you decided to travel?
1: Mostly traveled around Panama.
0: Okay, At that nice. point,
1: yeah. This was actually when we started uh, the East show. Sure. And so it was kind of building up for every six months and it was, you know, a nice. Like a nice little break. We, yeah. To
0: be able to go and do some travel for yeah. sure. Now your role has changed. You're now the executive director Of the Overland Expo Foundation. So let's talk about what inspired that to happen.
1: I interject with building up to that. So yeah, starting out as logistics manager in 2013, then as Overland Expo grew and as the events grew, kind of took on more and more responsibilities. So that's where I started to... Um, or became assistant director to Roseanne and took on more responsibilities producing the events. And then when Lodestone bought the events, um, took on kind of director of operations just to continue what Roseanne was doing. Sure. I just wore many hats within this organization.
0: A small business, you yes. do.
1: It's just grown beyond our, and our staff has grown beyond as well. When they said that they needed to somebody to kind of head up the foundation, I was very happy to step into that role.
0: To make that shift. Yeah. Well, it might allow you to go travel more or it mm-hmm. sounds like you've got other adventures that have been yes. coming into your life. So yes, now you're the executive director of the foundation. So let's talk about what is the Overland Expo Foundation? What is its mission? Um, and then let's get into what you're doing right now to make a difference.
1: The Overland Expo Foundation was founded in 2020. 2020 was such the year it was. It was. Uh, yeah. We really have only started getting things rolling uh, within the past year. The main goal is. To to or the main mission, I should say, is to give back to the Overland Expo community. Cause it's the community that has really made the events so wonderful. And mm. so this is kind of our way of showing how we can, you know, do good with the community. Most of what the foundation is Here to support our individuals and organizations that protect access to public lands or to improve public lands. We are looking for organizations that help foster education around how to overland responsibly and just create a more conscientious community about keeping overlanding. I don't want to say alive.
0: It might be, though, that it's alive because as we grow. As the organization has grown, as the community has grown, our impact has grown. It has. So if we don't educate people about how to minimize their impact, leave no trace, tread lightly. Mm -hmm. All of these things that are really foundational and they're important. I mean, just Moab recently shut down camping. Sedona has shut down camping in huge swaths of land because the amount of human waste and trash made it impossible for them to keep up or for the land to sustain it. As places start to close down... It'll concentrate that impact in other places and then those will close down. Mm -hmm. So if we don't stop it now with efforts like yours, I think that we're in trouble. I think it could be, does overlanding stay alive in North America? If we don't start taking some responsibility, for packing out all of our stuff, including our poop and everything else. So Mm -hmm.
1: it's probably the one thing people don't want to talk about, but it's the one thing we do need to talk about because it, it has the most impact
0: on the environment. It does. And if you go with the other one that I, that I feel strongly about is group size. I would say that it's fairly irresponsible to go out with a group of 15 to 20 people you cool or 15 to 20 cars, excuse me, because most campsites are not meant for that size of a group. When you look at campgrounds that have been around for a long time, especially remote camps, at most, they're going to be one, two, three, four, possibly five vehicles. So in my mind, if we can reduce the group size first, that automatically starts to reduce the impact to the campsites. We don't get the campsites growing, destroying flora and fauna. I mean, the fauna are impacted because you know, there's a lot more noise and there's a lot more left behind. maybe there's food scraps, too many food scraps left behind starts to have an impact on the animals as well. But if we can start by minimizing our group sizes. So I just really believe it's important for people to not have groups bigger than five cars.
1: Kind of along the same lines. One thing that we're trying to also just encourage is people not to share their location on social media. Sure. Share pictures, whatnot, uh, anything about the trip but just not the exact location that you've you know, taken hours exploring to go find this beautiful area in the backcountry. And if you share the location, then it just invites more use and sure. it's not sustainable for that area. Because it's the same thing where it has too much impact and these areas yeah, aren't set up for that much
0: use. How would you recommend then someone share their experience? Would they just talk about a region? So mm-hmm. if they were in Moab area, they would mm-hmm. just say Moab, Utah. Yeah. So it's super general, kind of gives you a sense for where they're at on the planet. So minus
1: the GPS points where come to this campsite, Yeah. because there's just been, especially during these past few years where more people are traveling domestically, Mm -hmm. there is been more use in these areas and which just creates more trash. And as you said, more human waste and just the ecosystem is not set up properly
0: for it. And that's part of our responsibility is to preserve this stuff for future generations. So that way, someone that's. 10, 15 years old that's excited to go to be an overlander someday and do their own travels, they actually get a chance to do it. This content is brought to you by Overland Journal, our premium quality print publication. The magazine was founded in 2006 with the goal of providing independent equipment and vehicle reviews, along with the most stunning adventures and photography. We care deeply about the countries and cultures we visit, and share our experiences freely with our readers. We also have zero advertorial policy and do not accept any advertiser compensation for our reviews. By subscribing to Overland Journal, you're helping to support our employee-owned and veteran-owned publication. Your support also provides resources and funding for content like you are watching or listening to right now. You can subscribe directly on our website at overlandjournal.com. So let's talk specifically about some of the ways that you're helping to facilitate that.
1: Our main grant that we offer for the Overland Expo Foundation grant is set up so that we want to fund organizations that have upcoming projects, be it you know trash removal or uh, restoration, something to kind of take care of a local area. So our first grantee that we just uh, worked with was Natural Restorations um, Not heard of them. based in uh, Arizona. They uh, just replanted in the this is an ongoing project for them. The bushfire burn scar okay. in the Tonto National Forest, which is kind of lower peaks, sycamore area, basically take, um, they rescue these cacti that are going to be destroyed from construction projects. And then they bring them to the burn scar and do a replanting. Oh, and wow. so they work, they actually have a core veteran based uh, team that does a lot of the work. And then during the two weeks that we helped fund, they had a volunteer event as well. So wow. 87 volunteers came out out. To kind of help put the cacti in the ground, give them water, uh, throw some wildflower seed, mm. approved wildflower seed sure. <laughs> into yeah. the air. Take out some uh, of the boofal grass, if I'm saying that correctly. Okay. Sure. Which
0: is um, non-native, maybe?
1: Uh, yeah, it's invasive okay. and it it's kindling, essentially, Got for it. fires. So Got it. They've been improving the areas that overlanders visit.
0: Sure. Well, and, and just to give a, like acknowledgement to one of the first big projects I ever saw successful in that, you know Tim Huber. And Tim, when I first met him, this was back when Expedition Portal first started, but he decided that he was going to do this huge cleanup out in Four Peaks. It's just absolutely amazing the amount of trash that we, I mean, dumpsters full of trash that we hauled out of there. Yeah. So
1: if you look on the stats for natural restorations, I mean, it's something like millions of pounds of trash that they remove.
0: Yeah. It's incredible. It's amazing. How do people get involved to help? I mean, I'm sure that they can donate maybe some funds or donate to those locations or organizations. Um, How do they help?
1: There's a few ways to kind of get involved. Um, They can apply for any of the grants that we offer. The Overland Expo Foundation grant is just one of the four ways that people can get involved. You know, you can volunteer with any of the organizations that we work with. We are also looking for ambassadors to come on kind of be behalf of the Overland Expo Foundation and to help us out um, to kind of volunteer at live events, or
0: we need some year round help as well. Someone was to go to overlandexpo.com. Is that how they find it? Or is it they go to overlandexpofoundation.org or mm-hmm. what's the.
1: Uh, so overlandexpofoundation.org. Got it. Uh, They can apply for any of these grants.
0: Amazing. And so, what would you say is your biggest need today? Like, if we could catalyze our listenership, like, how can we help you and what you're doing right now? What's the biggest need that you have?
1: One of the programs that we're trying to kick off this year is Leave the Trail Better mini grant. It's kind of our way of wanting the community to also be involved Mm because it's the main thing that I hear about with all of these organizations that I'm talking that have been talking to. It's trash is number one problem in the back country and it's going to be the number one cause to get things closed. Sure. And so if we want to continue to have access to all of these areas, we need to do our part. Even at some point we actually need to do more than our parts because This is part of the educational process is whatever you, you know, and this is a a leave no trace principle originally, but the pack it in, pack it out. Sure, And so we're kind of encouraging pack it in, pack it out, and then some, because there's always trash, you know, in any campsite that we've been to. They leave the trail better mini grants. We are kind of offering to like, if you know that you're going out into the trail, you know, on a trail ride for the weekend Mm. to just, you know, contact us. And if you know, we'll are willing to pick up trash along the way, um, then we're willing to kind of pay for up to $500 of the costs of To cover trash, trash bags, gloves, any kind of materials that you need for trash pickup, as well as, you know, food and beverages to
0: fantastic
1: to kind of help out since, you know, people are putting in their time and energy and um, we would love to just get more people from the community involved and make this kind of part of the lifestyle sure of
0: being good stewards yeah being good stewards oh that's fantastic do you guys have a social media presence yet for the Uh,
1: we do yeah okay so how do
0: people find that
1: you can find us on instagram and facebook at uh at overland expo foundation
0: okay And then how do people find out more about you and your travels? If you'd like people to know more about you and your travels.
1: (laughs) Um, I've kind of taken a step back. um, Yeah. from Less
0: of the social media. I like that. Yeah. No, I'll I'll let the foundation
1: do social media.
0: (laughs) Okay. That sounds great. Well, Allison, thank you so much for being on the podcast. So it's been a pleasure. Me. Is there anything else that you would like to share? Um, one of the things that we do like to ask is, do you have a favorite book or do you have some book recommendations, travel books or anything else? Something that's been really impactful for you, powerful for you? You'd say Jupiter's Travels, everybody else does.
1: I know. Who did I read? I So, I mean, honestly, before my first trip, I think I read like Jack Kerouac.
0: Yeah, he's great. On the road. Yeah. He's great.
1: You know, this was before I knew about motorcycle travelers.
0: Sure. That's a great one.
1: And then getting into the whole motorcycle travel world kind of opened it up. Yeah, I think it was, it was that.
0: That's a great one. Now, if you, if you were to sit down and have coffee with someone who had a life very much like you did in Los Angeles, working in the entertainment industry, they're solo traveler, and they want to go see the world, what would you tell them? What advice would you give them?
1: Go and go slow. I love that. Because although I took six months and it seems like a long time, I probably should have traveled maybe a third of the distance so that you can really like slow down, take in the culture and just be in the environment and experience rather than rush through to the next. I love it. So savor the experience.
0: Well, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners or?
1: One program that's very near and dear to my heart that we just launched is the Change Your World Travel Grant. And so I'm very excited to share that in speaking with Rosanna and Jonathan Hansen, who the original founders of Overland Expo, they had created the Change Your World Fund back in 2016 to honor the uh, memory of Alistair Farland, who was a traveler who came. To Overland Expo East a few years prior to that, in discussing with them as we kind of got some programs started with the foundation, we are excited that we are now taking over the Change Your World ethos and carrying on that. Uh, program.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. So
1: we are motorcycle or vehicle at this point that are going above and beyond the average overland journey and kind of giving back to either doing some sort of stewardship project along the way, Um, be it internationally, they can apply for a grant um, for up to $5,000 to help fund their travels because we want to help them in their travels as they give back.
0: And then do you also provide some like technical support with you being so well-traveled? Can you help Mm -hmm. these new travelers with logistics and advice and Mm -hmm. so that they can get support in in, in leaving?
1: And if I can't specifically do it, then we have a good network of people who can help answer questions, especially depending on the countries that they're traveling to.
0: And then the Change Your World, they also find on the Overland Expo Mm Foundation.org. Okay. That's great. Yeah. That's an exciting one. Yeah. Very cool.
1: Yeah. So we're excited to carry on that name. Go to our website, OverlandExpoFoundation.org, and see if anything sparks your interest because we'd love to have more people involved with the foundation.
0: That sounds great. And we hope that everyone does. And we hope that all of you go and that you go slow. And we thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time.